Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling David Woolman and Julian Smith. David is a contributing editor at Outside and a longtime contributor at Wired, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, Nature, Business Week, and other publications. Julian writes about science, adventure, and history for, among other publications, Smithsonian, National Geographic Traveler, and The Washington Post. In Aloha Rodeo, they examine a little-known chapter in American history the participation of a trio of cowboys from Hawaii in the world's greatest rodeo in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in 1908. We spoke with David and Julian about the story, their research process, and the complicated history in both Hawaii and mainland America that led to the 1908 rodeo. So joining us on the phone right now, we have David Woolman and Julian Smith, and they are the co-authors of Aloha Rodeo. And thanks so much for joining us, you two. Our pleasure. All right. Of course. Um, so I was looking a little bit online, and I saw that um, you two have worked together previously. I read a piece that you two did called The Cold War about um, ice cream truck turf wars. So this is clearly not your first time working together. Nope, just the first time working on something this big. <laughs> fair, fair. So how did you two divide up the book? Well, when we first got interested in the topic... You know, I was I, I had run into this story about a Hawaiian cowboy named Ikula Purdy um, and his victory in Wyoming in 1908. And when I was first reading about it and wondering, like, okay, is there enough meat here for an actual book? Um, Julian was the kind of friend to approach and kick kick around that idea with. And so we started to do a little bit of research together around the edges of the story. You know what what time period was that in American history and in Hawaiian history, and who might be some other characters to populate a story or a book like this. And um, that's when the thing really kind of blossomed because we started to see some, some wonderful potential as far as other characters and as far as this interesting time period. Uh, and so that's when, that's when we thought about, okay, well, let's, this would be, not only would this be terrific, but it might work really well to do as a team. Yeah, and especially because the story itself divides really organically into two distinct but linked locations. You know, you have Hawaii on one end and you have Cheyenne, Wyoming on the other end. Mm-hmm. So did you two split up the locations essentially? At first, that was that was what we did. We uh, we put the coin and Dave got the uh, Hawaii stuff, the first draft <laughs> book of that book, and I took the, uh, the Wyoming stuff. But there was I mean, no coin, Michael. There was no <laughs> coin. It was always going to be the eagle like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but by the end, we had gone back and forth so much that uh, you know everything is is equally both of ours. But yeah, we in the very first draft, we more or less split it along those lines. Mm-hmm. And and joking aside, it it also was it wasn't just um, the travel to and the geography split. It was. Um, a research strategy, really, because a lot of this story is um, hiding in newspaper archives and historical societies and things like that. And so 
it was a way to really just organize our research that Julian was going to start tackling the Wyoming piece of this uh, and the history of the Front Range and the cattle barons, and then I was going to tackle the early Hawaii stuff. But then, as Julian was just saying, we're leading up to this moment when these two worlds collide, and by that time, in the writing process, you know, we're really looking over and reworking all the stuff that the other guy was working on anyway. So so much so that at the end, you can't, we can't tell anyway. Like who who exactly did what or came up with what. Uh, and so you two got to visit Hawaii as part of the research for this book and actually meet some of the Hawaiian cowboys that are still active today? Yeah, yeah, we did. We, uh, I think Dave took three research trips and I took two. Uh, we went together a few times to dig through some archives and, uh, on Oahu, and we actually were fortunate enough to be able to go up into the hills where our characters uh, lived and worked with a few of the modern-day Paniolo and you know, see what this see what this landscape was like, and kind of experience just a taste of what these guys went through on a daily basis. Oh, that sounds like it must have been so great going there. Yeah, it was it was probably a highlight of the research. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, the research in Wyoming was a little more straightforward. Uh, you know, historical societies, um, digging through uh, newspaper archives. Uh, I I was able to actually go to Frontier Days. Uh, last year, and, and it's, gonna, it's still going, you know, over 100 years later. Mm-hmm. So, got to see the, the modern incarnation of uh, one of the biggest rodeos going. That's incredible. Um, another thing about the research I wanted to touch on you mentioned pretty early on in the book, and I'm going to quote from the book here. You're talking about the cows first being introduced in Hawaii, and you mentioned at one point that foreigners' accounts of these events need to be read with a critical eye. Their chronicles inevitably blend an attempt to tell what happened with considerable racial stereotyping and often total ignorance of the culture they were observing. So was this something that you came across often in your research? And as researchers, how do you work through that? We had this issue in mind, like, all the time with this project. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, like, even before we set out to do it, you know, how do you... Um, how do you approach the history of a faraway place when that's not your culture? And with the cattle stuff, you know, particularly these chronicles of Hawaiian native Hawaiian interactions with the animals. Uh, you know, first of all, it's not even that hard to see that the, the accounts are crazy are so bigoted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, they're useful because it's if nothing else, it just underscores the the wild moment in history for those people, right? So the Hawaiian people had never seen a mammal on land bigger than a pig. And all of a sudden, these things come ashore and are running up and down the beach. And you can set aside now whatever um, the Caucasian mariner has written uh, right after that. But just put yourself in that person's shoes, like seeing this thing for the first time. Uh, and it's pretty bizarre and frightening. Um, but what you have to do as a writer, of course, is um, parse really what is what is this really bigoted language about the people and what they experienced versus what is just the fact. You know, we're just nonfiction authors. We want to say we want to describe the scene. We we actually know when cattle first were delivered to the island. And that's pretty amazing. But of course, you cannot read that history. Um, account written by some white mariner as a total fact. But there is one other point I'll throw in, which is pretty um, 
which was pretty wonderful on the research side, which is that after the missionaries got to Hawaii, you know, one, one way to spread the word of God is, and make everyone read the Bible is to teach everyone how to read. And as a result, Hawaii became this very literate society with all of these newspapers, many of them in native Hawaiian. And so there are many places where you can read accounts of what's going on, um, translated versions, of course, but it was Hawaiian people writing about this stuff in their own newspapers. And so it's true that that moment with the very first cattle is, is only available in the written record through the eyes of a bunch of white people. But for this history more broadly, there is a wonderful blend of accounts written by a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also I, I would just add on the, on the mainland side, there was also very much the case where you have to, you just have to keep in mind who your sources are and what their biases probably are. I mean, when you think about all the, the newspapers around the turn of the century that we combed through, just getting locals' reactions to these Hawaiians showing up. And, you know, it's, it's this real interesting mix of uh, curiosity and disdain and, you know, casual racism uh, a few times. But, I mean, it definitely shows you at least how one side perceived things. And you're also, you know, have to trust them to at least get some of the facts right, like, you know, how many seconds it took them to rope a steer. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it, the, uh, the subjective part, yeah, you really have to, to read with a critical eye. Mm, absolutely. Uh, so I want to jump back. You had mentioned earlier, um, first coming across this story, what was it that struck you about this story of you know these Hawaiian cowboys going to the frontier days that made you decide to tell this story in book form? When I first saw, like I think it was either a plaque or a statue uh, honoring Ikua Purdy and his victory, mm -hmm. all we really get is like the two sentence factoid version of what happened. There's no story story. And as a journalist and as a writer, you know, to, to a certain extent, you're always looking around for stories. But the other thing you're always doing is asking questions. And when I saw this picture and thought about what it must have been, wondered for a moment, what, what, what it must have been like for this guy to travel from Hawaii to the front range of the Rockies. And then at that time in history, no less, like just after America's kind of imperial binge of territory um, acquisition, I, I just started asking all these questions about well, about this guy and what it was like for him and how did Hawaii react and how did people in Wyoming think about this guy? It was sort of this cascade of questions and there were no answers anywhere. Uh, and that was an early signal that, okay, well, maybe maybe this would be a cool book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, um, there's this very dizzying clash of culture that I felt as we got to, you know, sort of the climax, the frontier days. It's these this group of Hawaiians who are coming to mainland America just after Hawaii's been annexed um, to participate in this event that's quintessentially American, but it's, it's actually something that originated in Hawaii, but it originated in Hawaii because of these cows that were brought there um, in a colonial aspect. So there's just all these fascinating layers to dig into there. Right, and also the timing on the mainland side is also really interesting because this was, you know, the turn of the century was really basically the end of the Wild West as people know it, you know, the open range, the, the adventuresome cowboys, all that was, was really coming to an end. But at the same time, it was really interesting that people were aware of it, that it was coming to an end, and they were starting to realize how, you know, it was, how, how it really captured the imagination, how they, they were proud of this, 
you know, this heritage, but they also saw it fading. And so they were, there was this general attitude of, you know, how do we preserve this? How do we hold on to this? Uh, how do we, you know, glamorize it basically? And, and in the end, you know, how can we make some money off it? Mm-hmm. So that's how uh, the, you know, the Wild Bill uh, show that was so huge at the, at the time, that was kind of the big turning point of turning the reality of the Wild West, quote unquote, into kind of the myth of the Wild West. And all that was happening right at this moment when these Hawaiians showed up in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Do you think them showing up, participating, and doing so well, did that change mainland America's perception of Hawaiians and Hawaii in general? It's, it's hard to know how, how far and wide like news of the victory spread in terms of the general public. I mean, it was definitely reported in the newspapers as far away as like Rochester, New York. The New York Times. And so the news was big, but that, of course that doesn't necessarily mean that to uh, an everyday American, as if there is such a thing, but just regular people in their hometowns or like working in the kitchen have, uh, after this moment, like a, an, a relatively enlightened view of Hawaii and Hawaiian culture. I mean, for a lot of people at that time, I think, frankly, it introduced them to Hawaii because if they hadn't seen like a hula exhibition at the World's Fair in Chicago, or were really close news followers and understood that America had recently acquired this new territory uh, in this like um, hostile takeover. And what would be another reason? Maybe uh, ukulele enthusiasts, but otherwise they might not have even known Hawaii at all. <laughs> and so to a certain extent, and, and definitely an, um, an idea that was expressed in the Hawaiian newspapers is that this moment put Hawaii on the map when it came to um, people on the mainland understanding this place. And that it was actually part of the United States. A lot of the accounts in the U.S., they, they literally considered Hawaii a foreign country. They said these foreigners are coming in and beating us. It's like people, the, the news that it had been acquired by the United States hadn't even really caught on or spread by this mm-hmm. time. And this is a big step in that direction of people saying, hey, 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 there's this place called Hawaii, and B, it's actually part of the United States now. <laughs> and, and what that point speaks to also is this bigger question that, that hopefully people glean from the book, which is, you know, what does it mean to be American? Because for a lot of people in Hawaii at that moment, they might not have considered themselves American, even though on paper this was now U.S. territory. Uh, and so even in the language we use to describe the event, like it's inaccurate to say that Hawaii was a foreign country, but then again, to a lot of people in Hawaii, maybe that's exactly what they still wanted to be. Uh, and so, you know, it really just, I think, muddies the water a lot in, in fascinating and thought-provoking ways about American history and about American identity. Mm-hmm. So besides obviously reading the story, um, is there anything specific that you want readers to take away from the book? Well, first of all, uh, you know, we hope they enjoy the story. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, <laughs> it helps. But yeah, there's definitely a few other, you know, big picture um, ideas that we hope people take away from it. And, you know, I th- the biggest one of all is probably that the, the story of uh, the history of the United States, in particular the Western U.S., which is, you know, like we're saying, has been so mythologized to death, was actually a lot more complex and interesting and racially diverse than uh, most people, you know, than the John Wayne version, basically, mm-hmm. uh, which is great on on film, but 
you know, would definitely only skim the surface of how complex this place was, you know, how many minorities, women were involved. And, you know, it just, it takes you out of that black and white version and hopefully shows you that it was a lot more, there was a lot more going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot more diversity, uh, you know, it's kind of the tale of the outsiders beating the, the hometown boys. Um, yeah. At their own game. Yeah, at mm -hmm. their own game. Mm -hmm. And also the, the, just the entire history of Hawaii, which most people outside of Hawaii have no idea. You know, we, we have the, the beach and volcano and palm tree version, but the fact that there are actually literally cowboys running through the jungle and down the beach, you know, arguably earlier than they were in the American West, is just it's news to a lot of people. <laughs> it was news to me. Yeah, I mean, at one point in this, in our research, both of us, I think, were pretty stunned by a fact we had run into uh, by some agricultural expert at the turn of the, the 20th century. I think in the year 1900, a third of Hawaii's acreage was allocated to rangeland. And it's a kind of like Florida because again you have this kind of palm trees and surfboards stereotype and oh yeah I know there's some history mixed with like sugar plantations and pineapples come in somewhere there but it's really um, it, outside of the islands like this rich ranching and cowboy history just is not known and so in some small way hopefully we're uh, helping to correct that fact a little bit or at least ignite people's curiosity in that history. And at one point, they had the largest ranch in the country, even bigger than the ones uh, on the mainland, which I think it just kind of blows my mind. Mm, yeah, no, it's fascinating. Uh, so just one more question for the two of you. Um, since this podcast is primarily geared towards teachers and their students, who were each of your favorite teachers? Oh, I love that question. <laughs> uh, I'll start, because Julian is expressing that I should. <laughs> um, I had a journalism professor named William Wu, and his um, one of the many wonderful things that he taught me, and it's going to sound really simple, is like first think before you write. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is that is so much more important, I think, than people recognize. The other thing that I love is that he the uh, emphasis he put on material gathering, and that being a journalist and writer does not mean that. Um, you're a wordsmith uh, by nature, and that your job is to gather a hundred times more material than you could ever use in the final thing that you're going to produce. And then your second job is to just tell what happened. Mm -hmm. And then later, eventually, after your like 17th time going over that sentence or those paragraphs, you can put some polish on it that maybe makes it sound smooth and good to some readers. And like, wouldn't we be lucky if that happened? But, you know, you're not John Milton with like the word of God coming to you in your sleep, and you're definitely not Shakespeare, and you're not even Joan Gideon. Like, you're just telling what happened. And that, to me, like that humility about the craft for the first 98% of, of the composition effort, like, that is really helpful. It takes a lot of the pressure off of this, like, capital W idea about writing. Mm -hmm. And just tell what happened. And then, again, like later, that last 2% when you're putting on the varnish, like then it can kind of look pretty or sound pretty. And, and that's really satisfying. But it's not 
as a nonfiction writer or as a journalist, for me, that's not my, that shouldn't be the aim right out of the gate. Because if it is, that's sort of paralyzing, or at least for me, for me it is. Um, I'm going to have to go back farther than, <laughs> a lot farther. <laughs> I had a third grade teacher uh, back when I lived in New York named Mrs. Anderson. And, uh, you know, I was always a insatiable reader and writer. I would, you know, like a lot of kids do, you know, scribble down stories and, you know, try to mimic what you see in books. And I remember specifically one assignment that she gave us to write about and you know, it came back with her you know, corrections and comments and I just remember her comment was a little bit beyond the usual you know good job exclamation point smiley face it was you know tacked on to there was you know you should think about being a writer and you know when you're eight years old somebody telling you something like that it, it's just amazing how certain of these little moments really sink in back when you're considering career paths like, oh, I want to be an astronaut, or, you know, I want to, mm -hmm. I want to design robots, or, you know, I want to, I want to save puppies from whatever's threatening puppies. Mm -hmm. But to have somebody tell you, even in third grade, just with just enough seriousness in their tone of, no, really, you should consider, you could do this. And having that encouragement that early on, I think, really put me on the path. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Well, thank you both so much for your answers and for taking the time to chat about the book. Thanks, um, Michael. Of course, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.